Hello, my friends. My name is Bradley J, and welcome to another episode of the Revolution 250 podcast. Revolution 250 is an organization dedicated to commemorating the events leading up to the American Revolution. And I'm, as I say, I'm Bradley J, and our co-host is Robert Ellison, who's a history professor at Suffolk University and chair of said Revolution 250. And we're super pleased today to have Ray Raphael as guest. And well, thank um, you. Uh, I'm a really pleased to be talking with you from out here in California. It's great. Now, you've written a lot. We're going to focus on a people's history of the American Revolution, how common people shaped the fight for independence. But let's get a little sense of uh, where you are. You're in California, just above uh, San Francisco, right? Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm basically in the East Bay um, uh, of uh, San Francisco Bay, uh, just a, a five minute walk from the Bay Trail. So I get plenty of outdoors and uh, Later today, I'll hop in my kayak and go out kayaking in the bay. Nice, oh. nice. Yeah. Oh, I am certainly jealous. We, we all feel kind of homebound up here. Yeah, well, I'm not. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, I tell you what, Bob Ellison, why don't you start things off? Okay, so, Ray, you migrated west about 50 years ago, but then you've migrated back intellectually. You've written a series of really extraordinary books about the revolution in New England, focusing on what happened. Can you tell us a bit of how you got into this subject? Well, it was kind of an oblique path because actually I was uh, teaching and I was teaching high school and college history courses. And I got really focused in on critical thinking. And so I had this idea to create a three-dimensional uh, history course, whereas instead of there's being a standard narrative text, I would text, um, I would, uh, tell the narrative from three different points of view, not just an analysis, but like I'd adopt, I'd tell the story of the revolution from the standpoint of a patriot. And then I would tell it from the standpoint of a, of a Tory. And then I would tell it from the standpoint of somebody who's looking back on it, but is very upset that it wasn't revolutionary enough because it didn't include the, uh, the you know, the uh, uh, Indians and black people and women and so on. And so I, I did this, I, and it was really fun uh, in a way because I these three different perspectives, and I tried it out. <clears throat> I was going to do it for the whole history, a new kind of history tour, three-dimensional history. I, I, and then the students would take those three narratives and integrate them. And so, so I tried it on the revolution, and hey, it worked great in the classroom, but the writing turned out to be very boring because I was basically writing three polemics. Mm -hmm. And, and that, but by then I had my one foot in the revolution and oh boy, that water felt good. <laughs> and, and then I jumped right in. And, and this, was, uh, this was in the 1990s. And there had been some research, quite a bit of research into the comment, basically the um, alternate stories of the revolution from the bottom, you know, the, the, there was a movement from bottom up history. Mm -hmm. And so I started researching that and, uh, and but, but they hadn't really been sort of a compilation of this as a body. And so I really drew on a lot of academic research that had already been done and then did some primary research on my own. So that wound up with being my first book, The People's History of the American Revolution. And uh, it was great fun. My approach has always been because I was an author also. I have many books before that on California issues. Yeah. And I always like to focus on individual people, you know, make the stories come alive through individual st stories. And anyway, so I did that and it was great. And, you know, and I and it was well received. And so suddenly I was a historian of the revolution. OK, here's the But it took a long time. I mean, mm -hmm. this book, usually my books take about two years. This one took like four or five because mm -hmm. I had to bone up. It wasn't my right. field. So basically yeah. I immersed myself 
in the scholarship of the revolution for five years mm-hmm. and, and, and got up to snuff on it. Um, but in the, the end, I said, oh, phew, that was, that was, oh boy, that was a rough deal, you know. I got to take a break. And my wife, and then I visited my old college professor, Sheldon Wolin, who was, um, uh, and he said, you know, uh, this is a good book, Bray, but there's one story in there that stands out from all the rest. And that's the story of the revolution before the revolution in 1774 in Massachusetts. And, and sure enough, it did stand out for all the rest. In my manuscript, it was three times longer than any other story. And my mm. editor said, you got to cut this back. And what happened is because that, that's, that's, and, and it was, it was, as I said, I was like combing the literature mm-hmm. and there were these references to rural unrest and crowd actions in Western Massachusetts. Yeah. So I was like, well, that sounds interesting. I'll, I'll go into that. And then, so then that took me into the archives and the, uh, you know, American Antiquarian Society and, and looking at the, uh, you know, primary documents. And I said, holy cow, this is more than, <laughs> this is more than the uh, rural unrest and crowd actions. These, these guys are actually overthrowing British rule. And, and so uh, I tell the story briefly in People's History and Sheldon Wolin says, wait a second, mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. That, that's a story. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so five days after handing in my manuscript and my wife Marie was so relieved, I come back and I say, you know, got to write another book. <laughs> and, uh, and that's and and then so that's and that's the story of the revolution before the revolution, which is amazing. And in, in the town of Worcester, yeah. uh, half the adult male population of the entire Worcester County, all the way from the Rhode Island to the New Hampshire mm-hmm, border, mm-hmm. uh, shows up in one day. Half the adult yeah. male population yeah. Yeah. organized. This isn't crowd action. No. These are in the they're, they're militia units. Right. Thirty-seven units. You know, mm-hmm. and, and we have a, actually a count, a, 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 um, you know, a head count for how many are in each town. And they show up and they have the, the, the uh, crown officials. I mean, they're not crown officials in the sense that they're English people, but they were, they, they, they were basically hold the, held their authority through the crown. And, um, and they just said, uh, they lined up and, and said, okay, we're not going to do, you know, you guys said we can't do this. So I guess we can't do this. They, they walk the gauntlet in Main mm-hmm. Street. There's everybody, they recite their recantations over and over as they go. Very exciting moment. The big issue here, and the thing that I really think um, stands out, is that all the other issues at the time were kind of a little bit more focused, um, like, you know, closing the port of Boston. People think that was the big deal because, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, we go back and we know the timeline, the Tea Party, the coercive acts, they close the port of Boston. Everybody comes to the aid of Boston and then somehow that's a revolution. That's the standard tale. Well, the big thing that's missed is the people of Massachusetts had their constitution yanked out from under them. They had a lot of democratic guarantees in the charter, in their original charter. And, um, and they, they, they liked these. They had a lot of popular control over, over their local government. There was elections and, they, and uh, the, the House, you know, the, the assembly elected the, uh, the yeah. council. And then, and, then the count, and then the council appointed, you know, uh, uh, appointed officials. But it, all, it was kind of a bottom-up approach, really. Yeah, it was. And it got yanked out. So what do you do if the Constitution is yanked away? That's when you rebel instead of just protest. Right, right. So a lot of white male voters had rights yanked away. Others didn't have those rights. 
what motivated them? Well, um, the, the, the revolution itself at that point, that revolution was more of a, uh, uh, well, it was primarily a white society there. And the, and the males, they were, they were the ones that, uh, uh, you know, uh, they were the ones that rebelled. Now, that's, that, that's a very specific, I'm just going to finish that story, and then we're going to pivot to, 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 more, to the inclusion stories. Um, uh, that revolution happened, and then and then the people, the people in Massachusetts are are saying every every everyone outside of Boston says, okay, uh, we got to get out of here, okay. And Boston's kind of hesitant, uh, but eventually, through the Continental Congress and so on, the others um, they they come along, and and when um, and we have Lexington and Concord, and then all the rest of the colonies join. The revolution in Massachusetts. Now that's when the, comp the, the, the story really gets more complicated because um, you've got we've got the standard you know white male people who are running the show doing it, but all the other people in the in the um, uh, in America at that that time it was the, a total war. It was a total war fought on their home ground, not just two armies like linking up, you know. So uh, it involved the entire population of, of the uh, re rebellious colonies and the pop entire population. We're talking about enslaved people, women, Native Americans, um, um, people of all political persuasions, you know, loyalists and patriots. Okay, Bob? Now, you may, I mean, September 1774 really does seem to be when this happens and you have these events, you know, you have the officials in uh, Worcester, Barnstable having to, you know, actually their constituents are telling them, you know, uh, you work for us. Or, That's right. Yeah. It's That's really right. an extraordinary, that really does seem to be the revolution, this yes. moment when... Yeah. Um, and, and, oh, one thing to point out there, that is totally a common people revolution. There were zero leaders. There is no charismatic leaders, which is one reason why it's not told. Yep. Samuel Adams, like supposed rabble rouser, he was in the Continental Congress at the time, and he was writing letters back home. Hey, can you slow these people down because uh, because the the rest of the colonies aren't aren't waiting? That was our rabble rouser. These yeah. were people way more to the revolution oh, yeah. side than Samuel Adams. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but you do kind of find some really interesting characters. It seems like a different kind of politics emerging here. So you have someone like Timothy Bigelow in Worcester, the blacksmith who is, becomes the political leader and not in the same way Samuel Adams does or John Hancock does. Yeah, yeah, uh, he's, a, he's a fascinating character. Um, he's just, he's a blacksmith. That's, you know, he's not, like a, he's not a, like a lawyer or anything like that. He's a blacksmith. Now, if you think of, you know, um, the blacksmiths were kind of the barber shops of today. Uh, in other words, that's where people would come and hang around <laughs> and shoot the yeah. breeze and do their politics. I mean, aside from the taverns, of course, mm -hmm. we all know about the taverns, yeah. but the taverns, you come and go, you have some drinks. The blacksmiths, you know, you, people are hanging around while they get their, 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 horse, their horseshoes taken care of mm -hmm. and stuff. And uh, there's a lot of, you know, that's, that's, it, it's a hub. And he becomes very active and he becomes actually, um, be, yeah, becomes one of the quote leaders, but it's just, he's, it, it, it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's not like he's pushing the other people. He's just one of the people. And then when they have when they have to elect delegates to the provincial Congress, they, they, they send the blacksmith. They don't send the lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. Can we get back to the story of slavery and how that and African-Americans in this period? Because that's really a complicated, fascinating piece of this whole story. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, pretty much everybody gets politicized one way or the other. And when you think of what does it mean to be politicized, 
Okay. Uh, actually, I'm going to put. I'm going to do a little Native American story first. Okay. Because uh, obviously, the Native Americans are. You know, they they they're they're kind of on the interface. They're mostly in the West, and they're on the interface between the British from the North and the uh, 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 the colonists coming out from the from the East. And and so they all have to make a decision. You know, basically, what do we do? Do we side with one side? Do we side with the other side? Do we try to sit it out? And so you see these people kind of coming together in councils and sort of figuring things out. And in some cases, they, 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 like in the Cherokee, they split apart because the two factions, it's kind of like today, you know, the red state, blue state and the, the Cherokees, you know, like they just mm -hmm. say, oh, we can't handle it. They have two different groups and one, one goes one way, one goes the other. In the, in the enslaved people, they don't have that option. They don't come together in the slave convention. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, let's all slaves. Right, my, yeah. my plantation will send a, rep a representative yeah, yeah. and your plantation yeah. will send a representative and we'll all come together in a slave Congress and figure out what to do with it. You know, and that's not the way that worked. Mm -hmm. So what do they do though? Now let's, so, so picture yourself, that you're an enslaved person and you're say on Mount Vernon plantation. And, uh, and you know, with uh, Washington's your, your, your master. And, and it's, uh, it's 1780 into 17, you know, basically into 81. And the, um, uh, the British are making their way up the Potomac. And you have to make a decision. What do you do? You know, the British have said, hey, hey, come to us. You know, well, well it's originally they said, you know, the Dunmore Proclamation said, we'll set you free. Now that was kind of back in the early part. Now Clinton proclamation, he didn't say we'll set you free. They say, come in, we'll, uh, you can join with us, but they didn't like put it, mm -hmm. put, they, they, they didn't sign it in writing, you'll be free. But now you're an enslaved person, you hear these rumors this way and that, you know, if you wait and they take you over, if, if you wait and you get captured, you're gonna just be sold and sent down to the Bahamas, mm -hmm. you know, or the, you know, somewhere in the Caribbean, you know, or, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, that doesn't sound too attractive. Uh, uh, do you, or do you maybe flee to them? But if you, if you try to escape to them, that's fraught with danger. Mm -hmm. You're not going to do it with a lot of people. You have to sneak out. That means a lot of people who are dear to you are going to stay there, you know, extended family or mm -hmm. family. Uh, so many decisions. And you can't just talk it over with everybody. So you have to get together in your own little groups, you know, mm -hmm. and make... And it's the, every individual is forced to make basically a political decision. And mm. that's how politicized the American Revolution was. It's, it's most prominent right there, but it's true everywhere of every population uh, in, in, in America. They're making a political decision. It's the politicalization of the entire population. You can go down by demographic, demographic, community by community. Everybody had to figure out, how do I play this? Mm -hmm. Yes. It really is the people all becoming players. So, Bradley, you have a question? I, I do. I, is this book more about, does it focus more upon the impact of the war on the people with little or no social standing or the impact of the people uh, with little or no social standing on the war? Yeah, well, um, my whole approach to history is, is that, uh, that, that all of this is an interplay. Uh, and uh, actually, in a later book, since I had sort of emerged as kind of a bottom-up historian, you know, and how they impact the war. Um, 
but then I see, wait a second, the bottom up isn't the whole way. There's a lot of stuff going on on top. So I, and so like in my founder's book, I, I choose seven characters, some from the below and some from the top. And I, I see history and we can see it today as an interplay <clears throat> of top down and bottom up. You know, there's a dynamic that goes both ways. Power goes both ways on that trajectory. And, um, and that's what's happening there. Um, mm. Immediately people, you know, people are forced or there's a situation that's placed upon them and then they all take an action and they're taking actions which they take, think are strategic for them. They're looking at what's in their best interest, uh, whether it's the Native Americans, the, the, the African-Americans or people on the frontier, they're, they're uh, just, you know, going, deciding which side to fight for. Uh, and as they do that, they are impacting uh, the overall story. I mean, like the in 1779, the war was basically fought in the West. Um, and, and so, you know, it was a Native American. And you look at, I mean, the American Revolution was the most sweeping uh, Native American war uh, in, in, in our history. You know, everybody, every, every other war was more this group, that group, that group. Every Native American nation was involved in the war. How, whatever their choice, even if they tried to stay neutral, they're involved. You've um, written a good deal now about the Constitution, too, having talked about the 1691 Charter being pulled out from under their yeah, feet. Yeah. Your more recent work is really focused on the United States Constitution. And how do you see that interplay between these different levels in the formation of the Constitution? Well, um, once again, it's going, it's going every which way. Uh, the Constitution was actually uh, the, an interact, a, a reaction to a great upswelling of popular unrest. Um, mm -hmm. And people say, quote, Shays' Rebellion, which I have a problem with that since Daniel Shays was, uh, he, you know, he wasn't even involved in the first events. He, yeah. was, he was basically recruited. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, some, somewhere along the line, you know, people kind of pinned out, oh, he's the guy because they were recruited to be mm -hmm. sort of a military guy on one side of it, this massive popular rebellion. Um, uh, but there was, there was, there was th that kind of unrest was, was everywhere because uh, economically things were falling apart. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, there was, in reaction to that, uh, these people get together and they be kind of the nationalists at the time and say, we need a, we need a stronger central government. And that's, that's, so they, then they, they, uh, they create that in the, in 1787. Um, uh, there's one of my favorite quotes is, uh, uh, from the 1787 Pennsylvania Gazette in, in September toward the end of the convention, it says, 1776 was a, uh, a revolution in favor of independence. 1787 is a revolution in favor of government. They, they, they wanted to create a viable central government. And, mm. But of course there were parameters to that. And one big parameter was it, they knew that it, it would have to be accepted by the people. So as they're doing this, they're, you know, they're looking over their shoulder, what will the people accept? What won't they accept? And of course, then you get to the ratification debates, and mm -hmm. and and you know, and this is not a done deal by any means. And in in very key states, it's a very narrow margin. Um, so once again, there's sort of a you know, it, initially there's people kind of you know being upset by things and, and pushing mm -hmm. the system. The reaction against that for a stronger central government, then the people coming in from the outside, do we buy this or not? And then uh, and then how do we go further with this? And we get onto the Bill of Rights. 
Mm. So it's, it's all a dynamic and people mm. who try to isolate it one way or another, I mean, it's just, it's mm -hmm. ridiculous. Life doesn't work that way. I mean, you know, uh, um, you know, Hitler wouldn't be Hitler unless there were, unless he was re received, you know, uh, by, uh, unless there was fertile ground. It's mm -hmm. always, it's always a dynamic and, mm -hmm. uh, any kind of simplification. And because it is a dynamic, that always puts people in the formula. So any any book that you see, and it's all about what's happening inside, you know, in the room where it happens, yeah. well, that's very interesting. Yeah, and it's very important what happens in the room where it happens. But what about outside the room is also always a fig, uh, playing in the formula. Is there anything that's unique to the colonies in terms of the people that made it up that allowed them or compelled them to rebel and, and seek independence and succeed where other colonies from other countries at other times did not? Well, um, I, to tell you the truth, I don't have a sufficient, um, I migrated uh, from back East to revolutionary America. Um, and I have not <laughs> migrated uh, uh, to other countries seeking their independence. So I really can't give a, an informed answer. Well, is that, okay, then. Is there anything yeah. that is unique to the colonies that allowed them to succeed in, in general, where others, well, most have not? You don't well, need to know the specifics of the other countries, just right, that right, they yeah. failed yeah, or didn't yeah. even try. Yeah. Well, I, I think there was a lot, uh, you know, you know, uh, Tom Paine said had a lot would say, hey, uh, it, it doesn't in the long run, does it make a lot of sense for the islands, you know, cross on the other side of the ocean to be ruling a continent? You know, I mean, is that really sustainable? Not his language, ours, no. uh, but, but it's uh, um, uh, it, certainly geographic geography has a huge, a huge factor in this. And, and if you look at the, the way the war goes, uh, I mean, the, the military story of the war is the British could always hang on to any port that they wanted. They just choose, chose their port and would hang on to it, you know. Uh, and uh, Boston proved problematic, so they take New York. And New York is good because from New York, they can, uh, they can um, uh, uh, bisect, you know, go up to Hudson and bisect and separate the colonies. And of course, then they, they take Florida, they take, you know, uh, Charleston down south. And they can hang, if they... They wanted, they could hang, they could have hang, hung on as long as they wanted if they just wanted to do a Hong Kong. You know, they might still have it. You know, and that was an option for, mm. for Britain when they were thinking, hey, should we should we pull a Hong Kong? They didn't call it a Hong Kong then, <laughs> but you Hong know, Kong that's what we were talking yeah. about. You know, can we just keep an enclave there, you know, mm. have a colony there? And uh, they decided that would be too costly and so on. But um, but then as soon as they would go into the interior, they get they'd ma this massive resistance. I think John Shy had the great. Um, uh, he says the militia was like a like a great spongy mass, which just kind of like soaked them up. You know, I mean, the opposition once they once they got into the hinterland, uh, they would always just face formidable opposition, and so they they would get got some land, and then they'd have to get back to their safe safe zones. Um, so I think geography, um, I think the, there was a sense of, in the, in the, of kind of empowerment of the people. The people were not, um, they had grown up in an environment that didn't have like, you know, generations, you know, scores of generations before them with this traditional culture. They didn't have to overthrow a traditional church, uh -huh. you know, uh, a, 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 a landed aristocracy. 
they they did not come from a position of of, of peasantry, you know. They they were you know. The, so they'd the, been they, they become accustomed to uh, doing things their own way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Bob, anything else? I have one more. If you if you. So don't why don't you why don't you ask Bradley? All right. So in one review, uh, the reviewer called your work relentlessly aggressive. I'm sure you've seen that. What did what do they mean? In, in stylistically, relentlessly aggressive. <laughs> relentlessly aggressive. I haven't seen that. I'd like to see the rest of the review. <laughs> any idea um, what they might mean? Does that does that resonate in any way? Well, you know, um, it depends on what uh, what book you're talking about, too. I mean, I this one. It was it had to do with uh, the people's history. The people's history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I th people's history. I think was. Um, it was my first book, and and um, and it was one with a very focused theme on common people, and I was identifying with this kind of movement of bottom-up uh, history, and and so I was making you know, and it, it was relentless in the sense that I just kind of piled up you know story upon story upon or, or upon story, and and uh, I guess that's sort of what he's talking about. I think as my work went on, I got I got what I'd say more nuanced. And, and I started thinking more about, um, in the end, I really was more, I mean, the common people is still an important thing, but I got way more involved in my later work about how we tell the story. And that's my founding myths book is all about that. And I trace this, the evolution of storytelling of the revolution through the 19th century, you know, in all these 13 different chapters, you know, uh, and how uh, a lot of the story was invented in the 19th century. And when you look at it to, to today and the kind of the importance today, I mean, the bottom up stuff is important because of what we're facing today. But again, it's a dynamic top down, bottom up. But it's also how we tell the story. And, and so I got way more into like, uh, what, what, you know, how do we weave our narratives and the force of narrative on, on people's lives? And certainly that's what we see today. You know, the force of narrative is, is so immense, it's basically tearing us apart with competing narratives. Mm. Um, but, um, and I, so I think that's, that's not quite as a, a you know, relentlessly aggressive a, a message, um, uh, but it's one that I really adhere to. And it really goes back to my, my original involvement in history, which is critical thinking. And critical thinking like, with competing narratives, what do we do with competing narratives? You know, how do we do it? And so what, the way I look at history now is you can't tell any story without telling the story of the story. What's behind that? What are, you know, what are, how do people construct, how and why do people construct those stories? Um, initially, just backtrack, I would say the reason I constructed my, uh, my bottom up history is because I was a civil rights activist in the 60s. And I didn't see the movement as Martin Luther King telling people what to do. I was in Mississippi, I was in North Carolina. I watched all the field secretaries and going out to the plantations and doing the groundwork, basically the John Lewis people, you know? And, uh, and when I, it, I took that as my, my, you know, groundedness in my own experience and saw something happen like that happening in the American Revolution. And so that's how I got to kind of like my, my bottom up approach. But that, you know, I'm now, I'm now telling the story of my storytelling, you see what I'm saying? And so, you know, that, that positions me. And I think any, any, any history you have to position, you, you know, see where's, where's that position coming from. Excellent. Bob, you good? Well, 
I'd love to listen to you all day and talk more, but I think we should let you get in your kayak and enjoy Yeah, well, the Bob, we'll, we'll, we'll do that on our own. We'll follow up and have a chat. Great, great. Thank you. <laughs> okay, great. All right. Really good. Hey, thanks thanks for the conversation, you guys. And great, great to talk to you. Ray Raphael, author of People's History of the American Revolution, How Common People Helped Shaped the Fight for Independence, and many more. We're so fortunate to have you. Thank you so very much. And when this disease is gone, hopefully you'll come to Boston and we can meet face to face. I miss coming there, man. I love to come there every year. I got people there and everything. So um, uh, count me in, but I got to be safe first. Absolutely. Be safe. Thank you to uh, Bob Allison, co-host, and Jonathan Lane for all the great, great work he does. Thank you all very much. Uh, I'm looking forward to our next episode of the um, uh, Rev 250, Revolution 250 podcast. Thanks, gentlemen. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Bradley. Take Take care.